Hi, I'm Paul Cuddehy and welcome to the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. And I'm Molly Williams. Join us as we take you on a musical journey of 40 years, 14 albums, countless great songs, and lots of great Duran Duran memories. From the band's self-titled debut album in 1981, through to the Paper Gods release in 2015, and, fingers crossed, a new album in 2021, the Duran Duran Albums podcast celebrates each of the studio albums while telling the story of the band. We chat through each album track by track, pick some of our favourite songs and memories from when the album was first released, and ask podcast listeners to give us their thoughts on each record. And we'll also have interviews with other Duran Duran fans throughout the course of this series, as well as extra episodes on everything from non-album songs, favourite gigs and the band's various side projects. So while you might want to save a prayer till the morning after, listen to the podcast now. Subscribe, spread the word, and celebrate 40 years of great music on the Duran Duran Albums Podcast. Molly, we're back again. It's now... Album number three of the 14 studio albums to date for Duran Duran, although even as we get set to record this one on Seven the Ragged Tiger, we know that studio album number 15 is definitely coming out in October this year, Future Past, which is exciting, and also the single Invisible as well. So we're going back in time to Duran Duran, but they're they're bringing it right up to date. We are just right in the middle of the, the Duran Duran thought processes, Future Past, we're so cool. And I suppose we'll kind of focus on Seven the Ragged Tiger. People might have already heard the wee bonus episode that we put out about the song Invisible. And if you haven't, you can go and check that out to get our thoughts on uh, that song. Suffice to say, we both really like it. Seven and the Ragged Tiger, it's been interesting for me, certainly listening back through it. And what the first thing that struck me is I can understand how difficult it must have been for them to go in and record another album that was the follow-up to Rio because that set such a high benchmark for them. Yeah, I think, you know, you, you always hear about musicians having the dreaded sophomore album. Their second album always seems to be a lot of pressure on themselves to to try to either recreate the, the popularity of their debut album or to try to, you know, go off an entirely different tack. But it seemed like Rio was just so smoothly transitioned from from the first album and it seemed to be then when they hit seven and the ragged tiger they were just like rabbit in the headlights going how the hell do we follow on from that because those are two of the most classic albums out there so yeah when i started to do my research notes on this and listen to the album again kind of had mixed feelings about it because i kind of dropped off from the Duran Duran scene after this album was released. Um, I remember absolutely loving the album, but I had kind of felt like with the lens of all these years that have gone by now, was I going to still like it? I wasn't sure. So so I was um, really looking forward to listening to the album again and pleasantly surprised that I enjoyed it more than than I thought I was going to. Because one of the things that I've really enjoyed, and I think I've mentioned it before, is just getting the chance to listen back to the album's and then so ahead of each episode, I find myself, if I'm out driving, I'll listen to it. If I'm out walking, I'll, I'll listen to it. I'll sit in the house. It's not only you're listening to it on numerous occasions, but it's also diff- under different circumstances. So 
sometimes it's just there, for example, when you're driving or walking and it's background. And then sometimes I'm sitting, I'm actually sitting and, and going through the songs. And I really enjoy that that experience because it's maybe something that I've never really done before with that intensity, uh, listening to an album. I, I feel like I, I've been doing quite an, a lot of analysis doing this podcast with you. And I was just like, oh, I'm just going to like listen to this stuff. I'm not going to sit there and, and try to figure out what Simon what Simon's lyrics mean because and on this album, God knows. <laughs> so it could mean anything or nothing. So I was just like, yeah, really trying to just listen to it and let the memories kind of wash over me a little bit. And I have been trying to multitask. I would have it on while I was working during the day, um, you know, out walking the dog. And then over the last couple of nights, I've just stuck on YouTube and put the videos on. And that was just like, that was like, you know, those woo back time warp kind of thing. I felt like I was right back into my 13, 14 year old self in my, my parents' house in my bedroom. That was really quite freaky. I thought, because yeah, I've been, I'm nostalgic and everything like that for the first two, but I just did feel like I just went zoom right back to that time. It's funny. I think I mentioned to you before that my abiding memory of Seven the Ragged Tiger, and again, it's an audio podcast, but just to keep the, the run going, I'm sitting here <laughs> showing you my vinyl copy of Seven of the Ragged Tiger, which I think is a great cover. But I remember we went, it was about five of us went to Scarborough down in England in the summer of, of 84. It was a kind of our first holiday away ourselves and it was carnage. We're just like young guys there on our own. Lots of drinking. And I always remember, what well, I remember apart from that, probably can't remember too much because of the drinking, but during the day we would walk from the place we were staying in to the beach and we had like the big tape recorder thing and I had recorded Seven of the Ragged Tiger and that for me that's the soundtrack to that holiday. I know we played other things but that's the only thing I can remember that seemed to be on all the time. I, I think what that album triggered for me was this huge desire to go see them live because I think the Reflex video was the live performance that they did, live but not live. And I just remember watching that going, oh, my God, those girls and those guys are so lucky they get to be in a big arena and, and watch this band perform live. And, oh, I so wanted to go to a gig. But at that point, I think I was still in Tupelo and there was just like no hope in hell that I would be able to get to, to any any live gigs. Then jump forward 20, 25, 25 years, I guess it was, when I finally did get to see Duran Duran live. And it was just like a culmination of all my teenage dreams. But yeah, I think it, it really started with uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger. In the course of the, the podcast, as well as I was talking through the tracks, we'll have another clip for an interview. This time it's with uh, a guy called Andy Golub, who many of you will know on Twitter as Durandi. He has an unrivaled collection of Duran Duran memorabilia. And we're going to hear a wee clip of him talking about one of the songs on the Seven of the Ragged Tiger album, which really was the, the crucial moment for him in, in falling in love with the band. And then again, what we'll do is we'll play the full interview as a bonus episode. It's really good. He's a, he's a really good guy. And we've also got a top three Duran Duran tracks from Nick Thompson as well later in the programme. But what we did uh, ahead of doing this was to ask for people. We just put a thing out on Twitter saying we were going to be talking about this album and, you know, asking people to tell us their favourite tracks, either their not-so-favourite tracks, memories of first hearing it, did they like the album, and where does it rank in the pantheon of Duran Duran albums? And I have to say, Molly, I mean, I know we were 
I suppose, bowled over by the response we got, which was absolutely brilliant. I love it. You know, go Durani Twitter people. You're coming true for us here. And and yeah, I love it. Everybody just engages so much. And, and, and we've had a lot of great feedback uh, about Seven and the Ragged Tiger. So yeah, shall we shall we get into to some of the stuff that they've talked to, to us about? Yeah, we just we just thought we'll just read through some of the, the comments. And the first comment, we've just kind of taken these from Twitter. So the, the Twitter it's Hear Me Travel, it's at Lee Gifford, who says, love the artwork so much, and then says the New Moon and Monday video is probably the reason I minored in French in college. And also the Seventh Stranger still makes me sad. And Annie Zaleski, who we mentioned earlier on, Seventh Stranger was one of the songs that she mentioned as well. I think a few people have actually mentioned the Seventh Stranger, haven't they? Because EJCMP at E. Carrera del Rio, sorry if I've mispronounced any of that, more than likely, <laughs> They said, oh, how I love The Seventh Stranger. My dad got me that cassette on a trip when I was seven or eight. It closed side A. When I got it on CD as a teenager, I was surprised it closed the album. From the first time I heard it, it's been my favorite Duran Duran song. It felt different than the rest. And, you know, even just within those first couple of tweets that we got, you know, they're talking about how music then formatted and planned some of their life events. And I, you know, I've spoken about it before that, the reason why I came to England was because of Duran Duran. So, you know, it's just, it's amazing that this, this sort of thing happens because of music. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, as you said, there seems to be a universal love for The Seventh Stranger. A tweet that came in from Brazil, Media Martim Sereri, and again, like, like you, Molly, I'll apologise for my pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, some of the, the, their favourite tracks in the album, Union of the Snake, Newman and Monday, The Reflex, and The Seventh Stranger. Uh, they love the album and they'd heard it on, I think it was on the radio the first time and it's in their top 10, which is, I suppose, most most of the albums would be in your top 10 if there's only 14 of them. But um, interesting, again, Joe at jmon26. Uh, he chose Shadows on, on Your Side as his favourite. I Take the Dice is not his favourite and ranks it fourth in the album charts. That's pretty high ranking for, for this album, to be perfectly honest. I was quite surprised. Yeah, and the theme... For not so favorite tracks, seems to be I Take the Dice. I'm going to have a shoe with that later on. Excellent. Look forward to that one. But yeah, uh, there's Hey Parker from Dallas, Texas, that said the whole album is great, in my opinion, even Dice. So <laughs> there's somebody who'll be your supporter there, Paul. Um, aside from the singles, I didn't get into the whole album when it came out, only in the past few years. It is dark and moody art rock at its finest. It's in my top five of Duran albums for sure. So um, I wonder if it's a little bit like Marmite. Um, And then we've got our pal, uh, Jason from Las Vegas, Velvet Rebel Music. He's mentioned probably the peak of my fanaticism for the band in the 80s uh, with this album. Loved Union of the Snake, but the other singles didn't blow me away. Deeper cuts are still rewarding. Behind the debut, Rio, Notorious, Big Thing, All You Need Is Now, and maybe Medazzaland for me. And I think there, there was a note here to say that he had actually visited the the town in France where the, the band filmed the New Moon on Monday video. So again, people taking up challenges or tasks or things and, and later on in life because of a, a Duran Duran song or video. Yeah, because one of the other comments was from someone called Fabiana, who's based in Buenos Aires in Argentina. And uh, she'd said as well that her love of the band and the album took her to, I think it's Neuer's 
in France where where the video was filmed. So that's a, that's a kind of level of devotion that you have to just take your hat off to. My kinds of fans, good on you. Uh, what else have we got here? So I have to give a special shout out to uh, to my friend Julie Kruger in Nottingham. She is one of my music buddy gig going friends that I've known for years and years. And thanks very much for contributing, Julie. And um, she's actually said that I go with it being one of my favorites, the album, as it's the one that brings up feelings of being a teenage fan. Not even sure I can think of favorite tracks. It comes as a whole for me. Tiger Tiger gives me immediate thoughts of Lori's and the Sing Blue Silver uh, documentary intro was obsessed. It's funny, Julie and I have never actually talked about being Duran Duran fans, even though we have spent so many hours over the last years of going to gigs, we never actually put it all the way back to Duran Duran. So it's amazing. We've come full circle. One of the good things I found about asking people for comments, we had them from near and far. So which is fantastic, just the fact that people are listening to the the podcast all over the world. So we had one from Didi Diana, Didi, that's a a Twitter handle, uh, who's based in Croatia. Her favourite tracks are The Seventh Stranger, Shadows on Your Side, Human on Monday. Not favourite would be Cracks in the Pavement. And then she ranks it as second in her favourite Duran Duran albums after All You Need Is Now. So that is that is pretty high. And then we've got Delisa, who's based in San Francisco, chooses her favourite tracks, New Moon on Monday, Tiger Tiger, Seventh Stranger, and the Reflex, the remix, the Nile Rogers remix version. She also chooses as her not-so-favourite tracks, I Take The Dice, and of Crime and Passion. She ranks it fifth, but says her memories of it. She doesn't remember being as obsessed with it compared to Rio or even the, the Arena, the live album. Excellent, good stuff. And I am going to go down to the kind of the other end of the spectrum from uh, Culture Kiosk uh, at Kiosk Culture. He said that his favorites were um, The Seventh Stranger, Tiger Tiger, and uh, Dice. Lee's fave, the rest of them, <laughs> <laughs> which I love. They said, I thought it was okay, but disappointing after Rio. Ranks about 12th or 13th. Only pop trash is worse. And that's only because I haven't properly heard thank you. There's been some quite derogatory comments on on Twitter about thank you. So I'm looking forward to doing that podcast. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I'll say, and again, for people listening, if you even want to start thinking about it, that what we had been talking about is that after the, the new album comes out in October, then what we're going to get is maybe get some people on. We'll do a wee, a wee special series of podcast episodes. We'll get people on to choose their, their top five Duran Duran albums. But I think it's best to do that once you've heard all 15 and see even on the first few listens how the new album compares. I think it'll be really interesting because obviously people have different reasons for choosing their album as, as the first album or, or ones that are in the top five and, and ones that don't make it. So I think even if people want to start having a think about it, if MD... Even just now, if they think it's something they'd like to get involved in later in the year, just email us at duranduran at paulcuddehy.com. Everybody and anybody who wants to take part in it will be delighted to to chat to you. Absolutely. Let, let's do that. For you, Paul, where would you rank Seven and the Ragged Tiger in your rankings? Well, it's funny. I, I was going to do it the other day and actually have a look through. But then I thought, now that I know that the new album's coming out, I'm not quite sure if I would want to do that. I think it would be hard pushed to be in my, my top five. I think Rio would definitely have to be up there. I don't know because, see, because having listened back to a few of them, so for example, albums like Big Thing, I've been loving listening to that again. I think Red Carpet Massacre took me by surprise when I listened to it again. I love Paper Gods, for example. I think that was a brilliant album. So it's going to be really difficult. I think it's going to be a bit like when we were choosing our top three. It's going to be hard. 
Yeah, I think I think I would please don't ask me because I'll probably reserve my judgment <laughs> until I've had a chance to to kind of listen to him in a more of a continuous time frame, in a short time frame, so that I can genuinely say, you know, I can compare and contrast and that sort of thing. So yeah, I think it's still early days. I'm not going to show my hand on that one. Do you know what we should do actually once the new album comes out? We should try and organize a Duran Duran marathon listening session where we basically everybody starts with the first album and you just you listen to all 15 albums back to back without stop sign me up we've got a couple just a couple of more comments one from a guy called russell morris who's based in ireland and he's going to be on the podcast uh, in one of the future episodes because he sent in his top three duran duran songs which again if md wants to do that it's the same email address and it's just a wee voice file of who you are a wee bit know, the three songs you've chosen and, and why you've chosen them. He rates uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger 10th out of the 14 albums. Yeah, but he, he first heard it when Radio 1 did a run-through with the band on its release. One of the things I was quite interested in, and Annie Zaleski mentioned it, because she said Seventh Stranger and Secret October, and there was another entry, and they mentioned Secret October. And I know when they re-released it on CD about 10 or 11 years ago, and it was the first... I think the first CD would have been the, the track listen as we would know it. But then I think there was other songs, including Secret October, because obviously that was a B-side, but it wasn't on it wasn't in the album that we we're going to talk about. I'm glad you raised that point because I have to say I am a big, big, big fan of Secret October. So I, I was going to sneak it in if you weren't going to. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I've looked through the track listings and I know that Secret October was a B-side of the single Union, Union of the Snake, yeah. But again, it was one of those songs that was always in my consciousness. So I seem to have known it, well, since, since the album was released. So I am assuming, because my memory isn't good enough, but I'm assuming then that every single thing that came out for the album, I went out and bought. So like even on YouTube uh, for the, the track Secret October, they, they have a, a picture of the, the uh, single, the 12-inch single cover, and I recognized that. So I must have had even all the, the 12-inch singles have the whole shebang. But yeah, great song. I think we'll, we'll probably talk about it again in the course of the podcast. But will we'll, we'll, uh, will we put the record on and start with track one, which is The Reflex? Well, interestingly, given what one of the comments was when we, we were talking about it there, it's the first track on the album, but do you where do you stand? Do you prefer the album version or do you prefer the, the remix now Rogers version? I think the, the band felt that the, the single wasn't really a single single. It was more just an album track until now Rogers got a hold of it. So I would guess is it is it Niall's version that the video uses? I think so, um, yeah. Yeah. If that's the case then yeah, that, that again, that song just does really take me back to that moment in time. So I, I would go with that one. Do you know what I did ahead of recording this podcast? So obviously I listened to the album version, which I really like. I think it's a great song. I listened to the Now Rogers remix version, which I think that probably if push came to shove, then I think like Delisa from San Francisco, who chose the reflex, I think I would choose the, the Now Rogers version. And then I discovered, which I hadn't realised that, Kylie Minogue and Ben Lee, who's an Australian singer, did a cover version of it. And then I listened to that. It's okay. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a big Kylie fan, but it's not it's not one of our, our best songs, but it's okay. I, I have kind of tried to stay away from look from uh, listening to any cover versions because 
you know, in the course of, of doing the research again, I saw some cover versions available and I'm like, mm, I don't want to. So I haven't. <laughs> I'm going to stick with Duran Duran here. I'm just always curious because the thing that always strikes me about the reflex, I think, I think it's a brilliant song live. I think the video is so iconic. You know, it's just a live, but it, it kind of, for me, it captures them, that whole live experience and that hysteria, that just absolute fanaticism. If you're thinking of a song that is a kind of 80s soundtrack, the reflex immediately comes to mind. I think it's got a real feeling of, of the 80s. That's what it always makes me think of. 100% totally agree with you on that one. And I think, you know, how we, we've said in the past that the first album in Rio were timeless. We really think that they have stood the test of time. But I think Seven and the Ragged Tiger is pretty damn rooted in the 80s. Even some of the notes that I have taken that the video vibes for the singles, you know, Union of the Snake, New Moon on Monday, it's all a very Mad Max desert scene kind of thing. I'm not sure when Mad Max actually came out, but it really, those movies are exceedingly dated as well. And, and I do kind of put the two together. So so yeah, the, the album is definitely an 80s album. Yeah, even the, the image, the picture on the front of the band, it's very much uh, a kind of 1980s feel to the way they looked. Obviously it was in the 1980s, so it's hardly surprising. <laughs> um, if we move on to... The second song, which is New Moon and Monday, and we've already heard how some people were motivated to go to France to, to check out the site where the video was filmed. One of the things I think about uh, Seven the Ragged Tiger is I think there's loads of catchy riffs and melodies. I think a lot of the choruses are really memorable. But I was talking to, you mentioned Jason Lent, who is Velvet Rebel Music on Twitter, and he's going to be coming up and interview one of the future podcast episodes and we were talking about this album and both of us kind of thought in a way it was overproduced. You mentioned earlier on the difficult second album, but it, it reminded me of, I know, you, I'm, I know you're not a massive fan of Oasis, but Oasis is, their first two albums were brilliant and then the third album, Be Here Now, and it was a combination of overproduction, maybe the expectations because they'd, they'd such big hits and then the overindulgence in uh, other activities, etc., of being a pop star meant it was kind of bloated. And that album, like Seven the Ragged Tiger, I would love to hear it re-recorded, paired back, more an acoustic type album, because I think the songs are by and large really, really brilliant. But I, I think some of that gets lost in, in the, the overall sound. I think, he, yeah, again, you've hit the nail on the head with it, because first and foremost, the thing that I was really quite surprised by the entire album is just over 37 minutes long. 37 minutes for an entire album. I mean, come on. This this really kind of felt like to me that these guys were, let's just, you know, it's a difficult one. We're struggling here a little bit. We want to go out and party. Let's just check something in there. Let the producers do their, their, their whiz jiggery and that sort of stuff. And my general feel about it is that, they just kind of wanted to, to check everything in the kitchen sink and into it, but their heart wasn't quite there. I think they were more, it felt to me at least, I mean, obviously I, I don't have any insights into to what the guys were, would have been thinking themselves, but, you know, I, I felt like they just wanted to go out and party. You know, they, they recorded it in Montserrat, they did it in Cannes, and then they, they finished it up over in Sydney. So they were totally into the jet set lifestyle. I think that was kind of when 
John was feeling a little bit disgruntled with being the, the boy band and getting having all the screaming girlies and that sort of stuff. And I think maybe that was when the thoughts of Power Station were coming along. So yeah, I feel like this was the word that you used just a few minutes ago, bloated. You know, I, I think that's kind of the feel that this one has for me too. But were you were you ever motivated to to check into flight prices from the States to France to go and, and check out the, the video shoot venue? No, but I did actually book a flight 30 odd years ago over to the UK <laughs> and I've never gone back home. So, <laughs> you know, I can't really comment on that one. <laughs> that's, that's fair enough. The third track on side A of Seven the Ragged Tiger is, and again, this has always puzzled me in, in music, it's brackets, I'm looking for, close brackets, cracks in the pavement. I've never understood why they don't just have, I'm looking for cracks in the pavement. It's got to be an Americanization of it all because, you know, like I've said before, I think Americans just like to stick a lot of words in. Why not just call it cracks in the pavement? Why not just call it the pavement? What's your thoughts on that track? It's okay. I can't say it. it's one of them that really... It, it didn't really define the album for me at all. I think it, it was just a, an album filler for me. I don't really particularly have any thoughts one way or the other. When I was doing the uh, research, and I don't know if this was just one of the websites that I was looking at, but they attributed the lyrics to John and Andy. They didn't list anybody else in the band. And I thought that was a bit weird. So I'm, I'm not sure if anybody could correct me and, and advise me on that one. Was this song really written just by John and Andy? I'm not sure... Normally, the in, on the album, the full band get the, the credit, the songwriting credit. But according to the the inner sleeve of my vinyl album, all songs written by Duran Duran, arranged by Duran Duran. So uh, they would have all got credit for it. But it might just have been some some of them because I think that radio documentary was quite interesting. Certainly, as you progress through Duran Duran's career, that I just always presumed that Simon Le Bon wrote all the lyrics. But actually, when you listened, uh, Nick was obviously quite heavily involved in that as well. So. I think they just, as a collective, they just all chip in. Yeah, I think I, I've heard uh, various documentaries where they talk about the way they come about songs is usually they have a jam session. But but yeah, I've been very much like you that that I've I've always for for some reason in my head always attributed the the lyrics at least to Simon. But yeah, I guess it sounds like it's it's kind of a team effort. Because I, I said to you, what one of the things I do like about this album, I think there are a lot of kind of catchy choruses. And I do think Cracks in the Pavement, I do like the, the chorus for that. It's one that kind of sticks in my mind. And then as soon as you start hearing the song, you find yourself singing along uh, with that. Now, if we go on to I Take the Dice, which again, from the way that people were responding to it, must, it seems to split opinion from people who really like it to people who say it's not their favourite song or their least favourite song on the album. I have to say it's one of my favourites, actually. And that see that, again, the catchy lines of uh, show me your secret and tell me your name, catch me with your fizzy smile. I love that line that he sings, and I really, I'm, I'm a big fan of this song. I didn't like his really nasal, ay, 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 that bit of it. <laughs> Please, you may need to delete, delete that bit out of the, the podcast. Should, but Should that have really come with a warning beforehand? <laughs> Oh my God, all the cats and dogs are coming running in from the neighborhood. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that was one of the things that I felt overriding the album. Yeah, I agree that there's some really catchy songs and, and, and that sort of thing. But it almost felt like Simon's voice was a little bit strained in a lot of these. And, and, and I take the dice. I think, you know, that's what I was trying to reference. I think that it felt like 
he was really pushing his his voice and it wasn't really his natural singing style so it feels a little bit forced to me yeah it's in- interesting that because that, i think the last when we talked about the view album i think we were both commented on the fact that his, his voice was very strong but again i don't know if that's part of what we were saying of just the different sound and production that just the kind of songs they were they were doing at that time so I don't know if, if you were planning on sticking it in on this bit, but you had to, we were listening to that really, really rough recording of the non-track Seven and the Ragged Tiger. I felt that that was, that felt like Simon's natural voice and it was strong and it did have elements. I, I thought um, it was a really good bridge between Rio and Seven and the Ragged Tiger. And it's such a shame that they've never done anything with that song. Do you know, until I just... Like you, whenever you're doing the research, you end up stumbling upon things that you, I hadn't realised there was a song in the ether called Seven of the Ragged Tiger, which didn't make it onto the album. So it's quite interesting because, again, when people in the hype surrounding the, the announcement of the pre-order of the new album, people have been talking about this album reportage, which was meant to have been the follow-up, I think, to... might have been Astronaut. It was maybe at the time when the five members had got back together in the early 2000s. But they then... I don't know if you've heard in the back of Andy Levin, they, they've kind of shelved that and they went on, you know, went on to the next album. But Nick recently said that, and I don't know whether it would have happened if it hadn't been for the pandemic, that they were looking almost either an anthology or a retrospective, looking back on their 40 years and hinted that maybe some of the songs from that time that didn't make it into the public domain might be getting released. So that's maybe something to look forward to in the next year or two. It'll be like Duran Duran's White Album. It'll be all those those lost tracks that they, they'll remaster for us all. And we'll be like, yes, now we understand the links between all these albums. Another idea for, for the Duran Duran world, you've got your T-shirt idea. Now we, we need to make sure that this uh, this compilation of, of hidden lost tracks gets compiled. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think even we might pre-order that. I, yeah, I think I, I would put my name on that list. The last song on the first side of Seven the Ragged Tiger is of Crime and Passion. Where do you stand on that? I quite like it. Um, it has, you know, quite a, a bit of a rockier sound to it. And yeah, I think it's a good one. And I think um, it's been attributed that, that this was maybe, you know, I had mentioned earlier that maybe John was starting to set his sights outside of Duran Duran. So I think this is a, a nice little toe dip into kind of the the more rockier stuff with uh with power station yeah absolutely i totally agree with you i mean actually because i actually ended up writing down it was a wee bit rockier with heavier guitars and you could see that influence because it'll be interesting whenever we go on to doing you know the kind of side projects podcast that i think fans are divided into the two camps and that maybe depends on on what you what your preference is in terms of music whether you maybe like it a wee bit more guitar heavy or whether you liked it more kind of synth electronic type music so it was either be you're either for Arcadia or, or Power Station I think you can like them both to be fair and I think you know with the the more modern albums and especially the new single it's bringing it right back around again so it, it's it's got like a, you know really good heavy drum and bass but it's also got the the sense that in the that side of things it's got all the computer generated stuff so I think yeah it's, it's bringing it back around full circle for the band well, that's us got to the end of side one. I'll just lift the needle off the vinyl, just uh, for all the younger ones there. I'm just going old school, and we will park that for a wee sec as we continue our story of Duran Duran. We're up to part four now, 
And as always, our narrator is my daughter, Rebecca. So take it away, Rebecca. The Story of Duran Duran, Part 4 As the band's global popularity continued to grow, particularly in North America, they released a standalone single, Is There Something I Should Know, which went straight in at number one in the UK, only the fourth single in history to have done so up to that point. The song would be included in the US re-release of Duran Duran's self-titled first album, while it would also reach number one in Canada. The recording of the third album, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, was also taking place in 1983, and the first single from the album, Union of the Snake, came out in October. It also featured the song Secret October as the B-side, which has become one of the most popular of the band's so-called lesser-known songs. In November, Seven and the Ragged Tiger was released, giving Duran Duran their first, and to date, only UK number one in the album charts. It would also prove to be the last album the original five members of the band would record together until the 2004 release of Astronaut. At the same time, they kicked off the Sing Blue Silver World Tour, which began in Australia. In January 1984, the second single from the album, New Moon on Monday, was released, while in May they released a version of The Reflex, remixed by Niall Rogers, as the third single, which gave Duran Duran their first number one in the United States and their second number one in the UK. 1984 also saw Duran Duran record the Wild Boys single to be included on the Arena Live album, while they were also commissioned to write the theme tune for the forthcoming James Bond film A View to a Kill. They also took part in the recording of the Band-Aid song Do They Know It's Christmas, which became the UK's festive number one, and the first rumblings of the side projects that would become the Power Station and Arcadia also started to take root ahead of what would prove to be a difficult and decisive 1985 for Duran Duran. Molly, we we obviously had a chat about side one and we are on to side two. And the first song on side two is Union of the Snake. And what I was going to say is, you mentioned it when we were talking earlier on about like lost songs or songs in the vault that we hope could get released. And I've said this before that I don't know if it was just in my head or just the fact that is there something I should know was the bridge between Rio and Seven the Ragged Tiger. And I'm not sure whether part of the reason I, I don't have the same love maybe for Seven the Ragged Tiger is because it didn't quite live up to my expectations of what it was going to sound like, given what is there something I should know. And I felt that if, that, if they'd gone down that route, I think it would have been a, a better album, cleaner as well. Because I felt even Union of the Snake, I think, sits quite nicely alongside Is There Something I Should Know? Maybe a bit more than some of the other songs on the album. Yeah, I guess thinking about that, it, it does seem to be a bit more of a natural progression. You've got Rio, Is There Something I Should Know, Union of the Snake, and then going into the the Mad Max stuff of, of the rest of the album. So it's kind of interesting then that they would stick that on the second side because you would have thought that, that might have been the leading song on the album just to, to make that nice smooth transition but I have you know just in general with this album it has felt like it's a deliberate act of the band to go okay we've done these two albums we need to to be different we have to keep reinventing ourselves almost so 
maybe it was a conscious effort on their part to to really make something completely different to, to the first two. Because it's interesting you're saying about why was Union of the Snake on side two. And obviously in the old days with the vinyl, then if you started on side two, that's the first track. But when Simon Le Bon was getting interviewed by Zoe Ball, just ahead of them, uh, having the kind of global uh, launch of the, the new single, and he was talking about the album, said there's 12 tracks. They're still working and you know, tweaking a few of them, but they haven't worked out the order yet. So obviously it's something that bands at some point then have to sit down and think, how's this going to sound? For those of us who listen to it track by track, as opposed to the shufflers of the world. Go shufflers of the world. <laughs> <laughs> We've said it before that the, the previous albums, they do seem to follow a bit of a storyline. I think, you know, the first the first two albums, it was the more upbeat songs that would be on the first side and, and the, the slower, more noir type songs were, were the second side. And there doesn't really seem to be that sort of polar opposites uh, on the sides of the album. They're all kind of dark, aren't they? I think. And one of the things that I will always, I mean, it's obviously not Union of Snake that I'm grateful for, but whenever I think of Union of Snake, we mentioned it already on the single, the B-side was Secret October which is, you know, again, when we did the very first podcast, I managed to, to sneak in there and get it in my top three ahead of you. But both of us absolutely love that song. But what's amazing about that song is they wrote that song in, in about between 24 and 48 hours because I think, I'm not sure if it was for the, when the song was, com- the single was coming come out, certainly in America, they didn't have a B-side. And so it was Simon and Nick that basically just almost locked themselves in the studio and said, right, we're going to do this. And in that short, period of time and that burst of creativity they produced that song and I think that's incredible yeah it, it's amazing because the stories that, that you hear you know that, that they were partying pretty hard in that stage and they could actually that showed that the true professionals that they were they could basically lock themselves in a studio and crank something out of that quality again that I think is a, is a timeless song and I think as well it has kind of the Far Eastern sort of tones to it that links in really, really nicely with Save a Prayer. And I just wonder, you know, thinking about trying to analyze all this sort of stuff that, that maybe, you know, they were kind of reflecting back on, on some of their, their previous songs. But yeah, I just, that one I would have on rotation, you know, even, even over time now, for sure. It's a brilliant song. And one thing I think in terms of Union of the Snake, I think Andy's guitar on that, it's absolutely brilliant. Just absolutely on fire, isn't it? And and I think and and when you watch the videos, like the live gigs and that sort of stuff, and you just see that he was really digging on doing those songs. And yeah, it's a, it's a shame it, because it seemed like you know as time went on, Duran Duran took a different course that didn't involve the rockiness of Andy Taylor. And what a different beast they would be probably if he had stayed around. Well, that's interesting that. After Seven the Ragged Tiger, that was the last album the four of them did together till they got back together, I think about 21 years later, to do Astronaut. So I suppose it, this album would draw to an end the first, very first part of, of the Duran Duran story, I suppose. I think so, yeah. And and I know from my following the band, I was on hiatus with Duran Duran from this point onwards. So uh, it was definitely a, a stopping off point for other things for the band. If we move on to the next track, Shadows on Your Side, what's your thoughts on that one? Again, I, you know, I do like the song, but I felt, I, I don't know if it's the, the mixes that I have been listening to 
but it just felt again kind of frantic it has quite a, a quick pace to it and again I go I go back to it feels like the band were just in a rush to get this out I'm not saying that that it suffered from being that way but it just even feels just the pace of it just kind of frantic that's the word that I can think of funnily enough when I was doing the research I had seen that that song wasn't played live until after 2011 because apparently John couldn't play the bass line fast enough. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So I, I don't know if they did some studio wizardry, but it just, when, when I've listened to it recently, it just has felt really quite fast paced. So if he couldn't do it, if he couldn't play that live, then they must have just sped up the, the track in the studio. So I quite like it. My favourite bit is actually the end, the, the, the last bit where it's coming up when Simon's voice is quite low and he's just sort of repeating shadows on your side. I really like that. It kind of hooks me right at the, the very end. That's what when that? Simon got his stud muffin best when he's got that really <laughs> deep <laughs> voice. I'm sure that's what you were thinking when you were listening to that bit. No, I'm just thinking you've just spoiled the song for me now. <laughs> uh, I think this is one, we, we always talk about them, I think you mentioned the other one, that are very much album tracks that are solid enough without kind of jumping out at you. My least favourite track, you'll not be surprised to hear, on Seven the Ragged Tiger is Tiger Tiger, which is obviously an instrumental. You know, I'm I'm not a massive fan of instrumentals. It was good to see that um, those saxophonists from the early 80s were still getting employed at that point. So he gets a wee turn in that song. That's about, that's about as positive as it gets for me. I just think, again, why didn't you just put another song on it with, oh, with lyrics? Or, uh, it just doesn't work for me at all. I'm going to have to really do some some heavy duty duty research to, to win you around to these because I love Tiger Tiger and you know we, we've talked about before that you know oftentimes it's not about the words it's not about the lyrics of a song it's about the tune of it that catches us and I think it's just such a lovely sound to it and it doesn't need any words to, to spoil it or anything like that so yeah come on Paul like an instrumental <laughs> I'm not, I've said to you before, I'm not against instrumental music. You know, I've said to you, Mogwai is one of my favourite bands and I, I listen to them every day when I'm writing and I think they're amazing. But I think it's pop bands, pop music, you know, compared to, to the Beatles all the way through those last 50, 60 years. Part of the pop music is having a singer, having words, having vocals with it. That's part of the whole, for me, that's part of the thing. It just... It's very rare that you get a, a good instrumental in a, in a pop record. And I just feel, I don't know, I just feel a wee bit cheated when, when I hear an instrumental by and large on a, on a pop record like Seven and the Ragged Tiger. I'm kind of like, nah, next song. Oh, I wonder if they would dare put an instrumental on this 15th album then. They probably will. I mean, it's not, I, I have to live with it, but it'll, it'll, not be the, it'll not be the highlight of the album for me. I'll tell you that right now. I suppose I'll give you that one. Just one last thing on, on Tiger Tiger. They've they've used it in the past in their in their gigs. They they use it kind of as their as their intro uh, as they're coming on stage. And I think it's it's really perfect for that because I think even though I've only been to a few gigs in the more modern Duran Duran era, I think they were even continuing to use it even from that point on. And it does. It just it's that sort of song that that kind of builds. And it's really good for, for building up that excitement for the band to just pop out on stage. So, you know, I think from, from that perspective, an instrumental is, is, is a good thing. I, I totally agree with you and I've no problem with that. Just don't put it on the album. And when we were talking about earlier on that 
the track that we stumbled upon called Seven the Ragged Tiger. Why not put that on it and keep Tiger Tiger just as the, the atmospheric theme music for the live gigs? That's all I'm well, saying. For Pete's sake, the album was only 37 minutes long. They could have included both. <laughs> I'd have still been complaining about Tiger Tiger, to be fair. <laughs> Probably so. We are on to the last track on Seven of the Ragged Tiger, and it is The Seventh Stranger, which we already heard at the start of the podcast, has been almost universally acclaimed. And I think when Duran Duran writes slow songs, when it hits the mark, you know, Save a Prayer, Come Undone, The Seventh Stranger, there's, a, there's just something really beautiful about it. And I think this is a, this is a, a wonderful tune. Yeah, it, it is a good one. And again, it does help define the era that it was that it that came out in um i was the it, the angsty teenager thing so so yeah you could you could sit there going yeah i am that seventh stranger i can relate to that one so that's what always is conjured up in my head when i listen to that song because i think and again we spoke about it i think in the rio album that it was quite nice to have a, a song that's really i'm always i'll always like to see what the first song in the album is but i always think it's really good to finish in a really strong track and there's a real argument for saying that this would be the, the strongest track on the album. And I think it's a brilliant way to finish it off. I think the, the guitar solo on it is really brilliant. And again, it's it's a classic song. Back in the day, we've spoken about it before, it would have been the lighters. Now it would be the mobile phones uh, with the torch on. But it is, there's something really quite atmospheric about this song. Definitely, I agree. And I guess... It depends on how a band would want to package an album because it might be that they want to start off slow, build to a crescendo, and then come back and end, you know, on on a slower note, which, you know, this has kind of happened in in this instance. Or do they want to bring you back up again? Maybe that's the reason why bands do deliberate so much over their track listing to make sure they've got it right. But uh, yeah, it's a great way to to end the album. And I I still, you know, if Duran Duran are listening to the podcast and, and why wouldn't they be I still would like to hear a, a kind of paired back remixed acoustic more acoustic version of this album because I think it would be wonderful maybe what we need to do Paul is alongside the podcast is start up a petition free free the tracks <laughs> pair them back make them all natural <laughs> hashtag free the tracks it well, could work. Is, well listen it, it might you never know well, that's the that's the third of the 14 albums out the way. And the next, what will be Notorious, will be the next album that we'll, we'll tackle, which I'm looking forward to as well. And again, as we mentioned in the podcast, if anybody even wants to start thinking about how they would rank the Duran Duran albums, then after the future past, the new album comes out in October, we'll be looking to, to chat to some people. If you can pick your top five albums and there'll be chat about why, and as many people as possible, we can get involved in that. And it'll be interesting to see how many people have Seven and the Ragged Tiger in their top five. I'm not convinced that either you or I will have that. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait and see. We'll see, see what the mood's like at the time. Exactly. And you can ask me over the course of, I don't know, three weeks, and I'll probably have three different answers for you. So let's check it at the time. I mentioned that, again, we all, we've always been having wee clips of interviews with people that I've, we've been speaking to. This time it's with Durandi, who's Andy Golub, and he is, I think it's probably the best collection of Duran Duran memorabilia in the world. Uh, you'll be able to hear the full interview as a, as a bonus episode, but this is just a wee clip of Durandi. 
as did say to him, it's actually it's a brilliant coincidence that he was called Andy because he just has to put the, the DU on, and that's it's almost perfect to be a, a fan of the band. But it was the the reflex was the song for him that was the pivotal moment in his his Duran Duran fandom life. It was hearing that song that made him fall in love with the band, and this is uh, just a wee clip of Durandi explaining. Uh, what the song means to him and why it continues to be so important to him. So, for you, what would be what would have been that moment for you? What was the first the first time you heard Duran Duran? What song was it? Kind of just put that light bulb on in your head. It has to be the reflex. I mean, I, it, you know, the reflex is a song, and I think I love thinking about this every single time I'm asked. I think about some other different aspect to when I was sitting there. It was in the Oh my gosh, it was, it was in the parking lot of Tower Records. And I was listening to the whole uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger album, uh, completely mesmerized by the album cover and, and just the sound, the, the lyrics. But the, when I heard the reflex, it was Nick's soaring synth arrangements. It was Simon's distinctive vocals that were just carrying me on this audible journey. I mean, it was just, oh, I, I was absolutely enthralled with it. And the chorus, I mean, it just, not a day has passed. I still react this way. I get almost like cold sweats. It's like, oh my God, they're coming to the chorus. And I just want to say, I sing along and I long to hear my fellow fans joining with me. The reflex just seemed to encapsulate everything that Duran Duran represented at that time. And of course, the, the video for the reflex just personified everything that my mind conjured up. This image of this powerful energy flowing between the seats and the stage, the fans just exploding with amazing love and adoration for this band that had just adorned their bedroom walls. And the band couldn't even hear themselves play, but they just played it on. There was a connection between icon and audience. It's so much wrapped up in one song. It's just, it's beautiful. And of course, the lyrics are deep and I connect with them an only child waiting in the park. I mean, oh, it's, oh my God, look what you're doing to me. What am I, what am I doing? Because <laughs> you know the thing I always find curious, and you and I were talking about this before we started recording, though. You know, there's loads of bands and loads of music from the 80s, from that period that I loved then. And when I hear it, I hear their songs now, I still love them anyway. But it's kind of one of those things I can't quite put my finger on why Duran Duran were elevated. Now, part of that is, I think, the quality of the songwriting it's just at a level that I don't think any of those other bands at the time were able to match or sustain because they're still doing the what they're doing now is still as good as ever. But there was just something about their music, and it was I think just kind of what you were touching on. It's more than just the music that it becomes part of who you are as a adolescent, and that never leaves you. Then as part of your identity. Absolutely, there's so much of Duran Duran that Duran fans carry around with them. Uh, lessons learned and shared experiences with with the band, with the other fans, uh, meeting the members or or seeing their own life events and milestones reflected in the lyrics. I mean, it makes every Duran Duran song personal. I mean, it's just it becomes a part of us. There's so many people that have echoed the sentiment that you know Duran Duran have given me the soundtrack to my life. I can't think of anything that fits it more appropriately. And as far as why I'm so proud to be a fan and why the, the longevity of the band and this hugely, fiercely loyal fan following, Duran Duran are quintessential artists. They play their own instruments. They write their own music. But they've always had a very acute sense of where they are, where they want to go, who they want to be. It's remarkable 
And I think that that has stood the test of time. There's no one Duran album that sounds like any other. They refuse to stand in the same place sonically. I mean, the Rio album and Medazzaland, I mean, two opposite ends of the spectrum. And that is what gives them the motion. They are a constant band in motion. Every, every one of the artists has a role to play and it all comes together in beautiful, synchronized fashion. Uh, they just have this amazing, they work, they're a tightly meshed machine and they, they can go anywhere. And they absolutely insist on looking forward all the time. So it carries us with them. There, there's no nostalgia bandwagon. There's no looking back. It's even hard for them to even celebrate the 40th anniversary because they're just so focused on the new album. I so respect that. But for fans, definitely myself, I absolutely, I get so much out of celebrating the past as well as the future and the present because the past is our story. We've been through so much with this band. They have overcome and conquered just like Duran fans have. So we've all kind of traveled this road together. It's funny, Molly, I, after speaking to Duran Dane, he was talking about the reflex in particular. And then you start to think yourself, I was starting to think about, you know, what song was it? Was it the pivotal moments for me? Obviously I, I heard Planet Earth when it first was on, when the band were first on top of the pops. But then I started to think about throughout the, the kind of the catalogue of albums, what was it that kept me as a fan? Because back in the 80s, I would have loved OMD, Depeche Mode, various other kind of electronic bands, some new romantic bands. And while I still like listening to the music, I haven't stayed as much of a fan as I had Duran Duran. So there's just been a few songs over the piece that have just continued to make me realise why why they're the band for me. Yeah, I I have kind of chopped and changed over the course of my life. Um, I was the super, super uber duber Duran fan back in, in the early 80s. And like I said earlier, that kind of came to a close uh, after Seven of the Ragged Tiger was released. But... They were always percolating, you know, in the background of my life. You know, I could probably name, you know, most of the singles that have been released by Duran Duran. And uh, again, it just takes me back to where I was in that time of my life. But what is just so cool about all this is that now the age that we are 40 years on, you know, we're, we're circling back again. And I, I'm thinking, you know, whilst I'm no longer a naive screaming teenager, I still have the love of music and that's the reason why it's bringing me around to, to listening to the, the more modern stuff. And when finally this 15th album comes out, it will always and forever be embedded in this moment in time, you know, doing this podcast with you. So it will hopefully in the decades going forward for the rest of my life, that that will bring back the snapshot of this time for me. So it's what? definitely markers in the life. I'm curious, actually, you know, you've said a couple of times why after, Seven of the Ragged Tiger, you kind of took a wee kind of hiatus, as it were, from Duran Duran. What was it? What happened? Did you just like have a different change in taste in music? It was a little bit, but it was a lot that it was because Roger had left the band. <laughs> but that that was like one of the small things. But but as well, I had um, by that point moved out to Los Angeles and had really gotten into the kind of the local music scene there and the big hair, soft metal sort of scene I used to spend some time on the Sunset Strip going to gigs I hasten to add <laughs> and um and yeah because whilst I was in a place you know a really big city that Duran Duran probably would have visited 
and toured at that point in my time of life, I was really about going to those really small rock venues. So I wasn't into the big arena stuff. So yeah, it was just kind of growing up, but um, I'm back. So you must've been delighted when Roger rejoined the band then. Well, yeah, I think um, it was like you mentioned, I think it was around the time of astronaut when the, the original band reformed and I got straight back into it. And that was when I was finally able to go to a number of the gigs. But uh, yeah, it was probably one of the deciding factors. But it, it, it was just as well that, you know, the five of them work so very well together when they just make awesome sounds. One of the things we've been doing is we've been asking people for your top three Duran Duran songs. As we do it, we'll also apologise in advance because we know how difficult it is. We've tried it ourselves and we're not going to hold you to your to top three. But what, we've, what we'd like to do is for you to get involved and just record, just say a wee bit about who you are, even a bit about why you like the band or how you get into the band, and then just choose your top three Duran Duran songs and just say a wee bit about them. And we'll use uh, those audio files on the podcast. And we've got one that's coming up now. It's a guy called Nick Thompson. It's a really, really good top three and some great explanations of why he loves the band and why he's chosen these three songs. So this is Nick Thompson and his Duran Duran top three. Hey everybody, uh, this is Nick Thompson. The podcast asked for people's top three Duran tracks. And as I was wandering with the dog around the local estate, um, I thought I'd put together this list in the back of my head. I've kind of kept it core on these top three. I haven't gone into Arcadia or the Power Station. Certainly Arcadia might get some consideration, but no, 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 no. I've kept it, kept it core. I'm 50 years old. I, I've been into Duran, Duran since I was in school in the early 80s about 84, 85, being a boy back then in the north of England and liking pop music and especially Duran Duran got me a little bit of what we call stick in the UK, a little bit of contention. But hey, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with them around Notorious, the album. I love that funky sound that they had. The idea of chic mixed with the back end of punk, with those bass lines that rose and, and fell and the cool drumming and the little bit of rock in the background it was that album that really turned me on to duran sure yes i went back and i i certainly liked it i remember buying seven and the ragged tiger on cassette in london but it was notorious that i fell in love with and that's why at number one and i know you probably hate me for this i put me el presidente the single version as my favorite duran track I love the way the bass line rises and then falls and those tom-toms. There's not many songs that make a 50-year-old guy dance in the kitchen. You say dance, but actually it's just throwing your arms around. But Me El Presidente, the single version, works for me. It's way superior than the version that's on the album. I recently, as part of this um, podcast, looked back at all those album covers and the 12-inch covers of things like Me El Presidente, and it reminded me that I used to have them on vinyl. What did I do to those records? Why did I sell those records? Why did I give them to a record shop in Bolton in the north of England? Just because it was less stuff for me have to take from my parents' house to the first house I moved out to. I really wish I had them back now on 12-inch vinyl. Track number two. Let's go back a little bit further. I'm going to go for the chauffeur. Moody and Grey. <laughs> 
I love the chauffeur. It's cool. It's dark. It's foreboding. It's like a great big slab of chocolate cake that you have occasionally, but when you do, God, it's good. It's hidden away at the end of the album, so if you hear it live in concert, you can turn to those people around you and nod and go, yeah, I love this track too, because it's not a single and most people don't know it. Really, really good. And finally, the rockier edge of the output, and again, back to the Notorious album. And I know there's a whole bunch of other albums we could have chosen, but hold me. Hold Me is great when you turn it up loud. There's a whole conversation to be had about Andy and his input into the band, and yeah, I've read the book and I've got his opinion, I understand that. And I miss the guitars. In recent years, Duran have gone down that modern music movement. I wasn't a lover of the late 90s, early 2000s stuff. Yeah, I like it, but I don't love it. But Hold Me really kicks in. It rocks. It's got a beat. And me, as a grown-up teenager, I still love it. Anyway, there you go, kids. Na, 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 na. See you later. Nick, obviously, two of his songs, I think, were from Notorious, so he... He chose Meet El Presidente, the single version. He chose The Chauffeur, and then he chose Hold Me. But again, I think, and really, it was really good listening to him and, and his explanations of why he's a Duran Duran fan. I think it's interesting, even if we go back and revisit all the people that have been involved, and even including you and I, we may end up choosing three different songs. I would hazard a guess that my first two will probably remain locked down. But yeah, that third one probably will change as, as I'm, you know, as we go through this podcast as well, you know, I'll be listening to some music that I've not heard before, but also revisiting some of the singles that I had forgotten about. So, so yeah, my, my first two definitely will, will stay the same, but the third one could change and move around. But what I would also like to say, thank you first and foremost to everybody who is contributing these, um, these top three choices. They're absolutely fabulous, but can I give a shout out to some of the ladies? Come on. I want to hear your voices because I know Duran Duran have heard plenty of our voices over the years screaming, put it on tape and um, tell us what your top three are. And, and, you know, like Paul was saying, put together your top five albums as well. We'd really, really love to hear from the female Duranis out there. Yeah. And we're, we're on Twitter at Albums Duran, or you can email us Duran Duran at paulcuddehy.com. We are sadly at the end of the podcast. So you can there'll be a bonus episode going up with the full interview with Durandi. You can also check out right now the other bonus episode that, that we have uh, chatted through the first new song in about six years from Duran Duran, Invisible, and that's well worth listening to as well, as is the single, of course. And the next album that we were going to get cracking on, start listening to now, is Not Not, Not Notorious. Sorry, have you got a stutter there, Paul? <laughs> I see what I did there. I was trying to be... Never so clever. Well done. <laughs> you know, by all means, like we did with uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger, tweet us your, your opinions about Notorious. Let us know what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking about that album. Me too. Bring it on. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us on the Duran Duran Albums podcast, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you can subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us, that will help other Duranis to find us. And of course, if you can spread the word about the podcast, all the better. You can also let us know what you think of the podcast. Follow us on Twitter 
at albumsduran or email us at durandoran at paulcudahy.com. Join us next time on the podcast. And in the meantime, keep listening to Duran Duran like some new romantic looking for the TV sound.